The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I'll set aside a little bit more time tonight for discussion. And this is a particularly useful way to unpack our spiritual practice, our spiritual path, to just cultivate in our daily life and in our sit, we're cultivating a reflection on truth. Not with a capital T, but a small t, like how is it now in this body, in this mind? And in doing that, we're going to highlight, we're going to begin to notice all of our habits of distraction and our habit of overlaying on our experience, our thoughts about things, our concepts about things. And we'll begin to discern this barometer that I talked briefly about last Sunday, that when we do, you know, like we're in an interaction with somebody and because we're not paying attention, we just naturally in a sense, we just drop this whole conceptual package of what I think about this person or what I think he or she is thinking about me. And all of that distraction, all of that is the experience of separation. And that hurts. I mean, there's a, a very specific pain, discomfort of that kind of separation. I mean, whenever we're in a story then we're working hard at sort of the, what the story invites us to do. Like if our story is that we're no good, then we're manipulating the situation to make that true, to make that make sense. All of which takes us out of the immediacy of the moment. And we can begin to notice that. And we can also notice in moments when the heart-mind is really direct, and there's an experience of intimacy, simplicity, we can notice the relief of that kind of direct way of being when we're not manipulating, when we're not distorting. And this is such a deep insight that you know we kind of notice and then draw on or deepen in practice that the, the practice itself of being mindful, of being intimate, it has a built-in feedback loop. It seems like it should be the other way around, that being distracted, being angry, being irritated, being greedy, being identified and attached, it seems like that has a built-in feedback mechanism because it's so easy to live that way. But actually, the built-in feedback mechanism there is just that it's our habit. And we've identified with those ways of being the mind has gotten identified. But actually, it's a lot of work to be maintaining a sense of separation, a sense of neediness, a sense of irritation. All of that actually takes a lot of work. Like we have to keep whipping up our dramas, whatever they might be. Any particular self-centered drama takes a lot of work. Intimacy actually doesn't take any work. But it's just not the habit of the mind. So the work is not to be confused by the force of habit, by the impulse, you know, that impulse or those impulses, those intentions that have a lot of momentum, a lot of charge, which we just sort of get on board and run with. So that's why we hear so much in practice that, you know, that instruction about relaxing or simplicity. And this is also true with this, the teachings on truthfulness. So it does take a lot of work, a lot of energy or effort to cultivate degrees, greater degrees of truthfulness in our speech. And then last week I talked a lot about being truthful or honest with our own stuff, like seeing more clearly the emotions that are arising in the mind and heart and the thoughts, and just energetically you know, what's arising in the experience of the body. All of this is such important information. So it takes a lot of effort. 
But the effort is in overcoming the momentum of habits of distraction, habits of being lost in our stuff, in our dramas. But we've got this barometer. So to undo the habits, the most powerful thing about undoing the habits is this recognition that getting lost, getting caught up in life is separating it's fragmenting and it hurts. And even when we when we go the other direction and there's a sense of settling, it may not feel good initially. You know, like just at the beginning of the sit as we settled into the experience of the body. I mean, a lot of us feel a background of energetic tension as the mind gets quiet. You know, it's not all bliss, of course, or we feel uneasy or we have aches in our knee, or we have a painful memory or emotion, kind of an anxiety, let's say, just sort of for no particular reason, but just feeling anxious or uneasy. But to open and to see truthfully, oh, this is how it is now, that simplicity is a pleasant, wholesome quality in the mind. So. It's interesting, it's almost, it sounds paradoxical, but opening to something unpleasant, being mindful of something unpleasant, is wholesome. And wholesome, by definition, means it feels good. Being direct, being honest, being accepting with what's already true, coming into alignment, as I said in the guided instructions, that alignment itself is a release of the opposite, you know, of like avoiding coming into alignment. So this is the first part, and I mentioned this the last couple of weeks, is just understanding that this commitment to truth is a commitment to happiness and peace. It isn't something we commit to because we want to be good citizens or a good human being or first in line for heaven. You know, we commit to truth because it's healing. It feels good. In all the little and all the big ways, we commit to truthfulness. The whole world, in a sense, is burning and weighed down by the opposite of truthfulness. You know, all of the deceit, all of the ways reality is being manipulated, truth is being manipulated, shaded this way or that way. So just even in our own life, just even in, a, in one set, to cultivate the integrity of truthfulness and the simplicity of truthfulness, we don't actually have to work at truthfulness, as I'm saying. It's more about not believing the habit energy and instead believing this resolve or this commitment in the mind to just see, to allow the natural sensitivity of the mind to know it's like this now. It's like this now, moment to moment. It's like this now, and now it's like this. And you know, when we're with something ordinary like the breath coming in and the breath going out, of course, it feels like, well, what is the point of being truthful with something so ordinary? I mean, there's got to be something important to see. And then that needs to be seen truthfully. Oh, that's just doubt. That's just a thought. That's just confusion. And it's like this. So it's not so easy to just be in the present moment because our life story, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves and about everything else, that is very compelling to us, you know. So when some little fragment of our life story arises in our mind, the tendency is to grab a hold of it. It feels so relevant to pick it up and run with it. You know, I've had a really difficult life. You know, we pick it up. I don't deserve this. I want this. Everything's been perfect so far. So whatever our particular story might be, it doesn't matter. But the truth is, it's just a thought. It's just a thought, just a feeling, if there's an emotion attached to it. It's just that. And we don't have to let it become more than that. We don't have to get lost in it. And this, 
you know, in this way, we really get a, a clearer sense of how meditation practice is a real support for truthfulness. And for this month, when we're talking about truthfulness, I'd really take a few minutes or a few seconds, maybe a minute, at the beginning of the sit to just reflect on what you're doing in terms of truthfulness. So here you are sitting, you know, so even the posture, okay, the posture is all about supporting, seeing, feeling things as they are. So just that integrity of the posture itself can express in a way this commitment to truthfulness. And then we remember what we're going to do in the meditation. Okay, I'm going to use my breath as an anchor, for example. I mean, there are many techniques, but it's one we often use here. I'm going to use the breath as an anchor for the attention. But I'm not fixing the attention on the breath. I'm just using the breath as a means to become, to experiment or to explore the possibility of being intimate, of being truthful, like to see the actual experience of breathing in in a clear, non-distorted way. What is the experience of breathing in when the mind isn't confused by our thoughts about the breath or our thoughts about being a meditator breathing in? But just the experience of breathing in in a, in a very direct, intimate way. And then, of course, breathing out. And then, of course, the distractions. So when distractions arise, no matter what they are, what is the experience of a mind being distracted with this thought, with this pain, with this whatever? And then if we react to the distraction, then we try in that moment to receive that experience of being reactive. Oh, the mind's upset and it's like this. So that moment-to-moment -moment directness, it's like an inner candor. Where, you know, we're not like, the, what did they say in one of those shows? The no skin zone. You know, it's like, that's the, the flavor of the practice. Like, I'm tired of putting a spin on everything. You know, if I'm in a bad mood, I'm tired of casting everything in a bad light. If I'm in a good mood, I'm tired of casting everything in a good light. If I'm in a neutral mood, I'm tired of casting everything in a neutral light. You know, whatever our view is, we tend to want to perpetuate it. But actually, we can be independent of a view, in a sense. You know, just the facts, just how it is. And that's really what the meditation practice is. And then it doesn't matter how far off we've gotten into some drama, you know, lost in thought for five minutes, let's say, consumed in agitation, you know, in aversion about this particular memory, or caught up in some fantasy, some hopeful fantasy. As soon as the mind recognizes that this is how it is, there's really no other distance we have to cross over. That's it. Just to know the mind is caught up in fantasy is a return to truthfulness. That's a moment of mindfulness. We tend to underestimate that. We overdo it. Like We feel like, well, no, no, I'm not done until I punish myself for having been distracted. <laughs> then, I'll, then I'm back. You know? But no, as soon as we know that the mind is caught up, we're back. That's the present moment. That's what it's like to be caught up. Oh, being lost in fantasy is like this. Being afraid is like this. So truth or mindfulness doesn't care what's being known. Mindfulness is never about what's being known. It's about the purity, the directness of the knowing, the simplicity of the knowing. That's really what it's about. And this is such a relief because Inevitably, no matter how much I say it to myself or say it to you, it's not so easy for us to get this point. We really think it's about what we're knowing, what we're seeing, what we're experiencing. But it isn't. It's about the integrity or the simplicity or the directness of the seeing, of the knowing. The practice is about revealing this heart, this mind, that is capable of living or being in this very direct, immediate, present moment way. It's like revealing this potentiality that 
we're totally missing because we're so caught up in the dramas of who we are and what we want and what we're afraid of and who we think everybody else is, whether we think the healthcare package should pass or not, <laughs> or your favorite NCAA basketball team <laughs> and whether they've won. Hey, did you hear that? <laughs> so it's so easy to get pulled into that world. And then everything on that level seems so important. The, the thinking the next thought seems so important. And even thinking that we shouldn't think that next thought can seem really important. And we never get out of that world because we kind of we bounce back and forth from you know really being in it and then really feeling like we shouldn't be in it, which is just another world, which is the same world. So this is why you know truthfulness and simplicity, directness, these are really useful ways of reorienting the mind. You know, dropping out, even relaxation. This is why the experience or the instruction of relaxing is so important because when we're in the drama and responding to one thought with another, that endless, seemingly endless proliferation of thought, there's a corresponding tension in the body. So the instruction to relax, to let the body be, is like a nice way for the mind to realize, well, it can let go too. It can drop its fixation, its reactivity. I mentioned last week we spent a long time talking about how this really, this work really begins with this truthfulness with ourselves. But this week I wanted to speak more about our speech. So not so much our inner speech, but our speech out in the world and how to take this commitment to directness and intimacy, how does that look in this world, you know, where we're interacting in all kinds of different ways all the time. And, and the first point is the one I made a few minutes ago, which is that same barometer for our sitting practice and our more quiet moments of when we're alienating ourselves, our dramas, our stories, how we're talking in our minds, that can alienate ourselves, separate ourselves. And then that hurts. So that pain of separation, of isolation, really is a useful barometer, also in our speech with each other. And then the sort of release of candor and intimacy and directness that sense of release and ease that comes with telling the truth and not saying more than we have to say, but not saying less, not like holding back, that directness also has a particular flavor of ease. We can probably remember now, you know, in a moment, I'll stop talking, or maybe a few moments, but it'd be nice to hear from people, you know, examples where you noticed in conversation both ends of that life where there was just a lot of tension and discomfort. You know, and then if you had the wherewithal, you might have noticed that, oh, that tension, that discomfort, this ease is directly related to the fact that I'm in this interaction, I'm speaking in a way, I have an agenda. You know, I'm trying to make something happen here. I'm trying to shade the truth, like get the person to see me in a particular light or win somebody over to my point of view. Or we use speech sometimes just to fill up space, like I don't want to feel what I'm feeling, so I'm going to chat, you know, talk to you about the NCAA, you know. And it's like keeps us from that hollow feeling we tend to have sometimes when our minds get quiet, feeling alone. So we can use the same barometer, and it's really helpful. But we can also reflect like the Buddha had a lot to say about right speech. And in the Noble Eightfold Path, you know, his articulation of a wholesome spiritual life, you know, one of the parts of this, the Eightfold Path is right speech. It's one of the five precepts that, like this morning at our quarterly community gathering, we recite the five precepts for lay people. One of them is 
undertaking the training to refrain from speaking falsely, speaking in ways that are harmful. So one of the ways the Buddha talked about this is he talks about abstaining from false speech, meaning really being on the lookout for the intention to lie or to deceive, to play loose with the truth. This includes leaving out part of the truth. Like you may say the truth, but you don't say the whole truth. You know, this is how you know, a lot of people at Kamagana, well, we're committed to not lying, but we're not committed necessarily to, you know, telling the whole truth, even when it, you know, doesn't sort of cast us in a good light. And my wife's been away for five days. I'll see her when I get home. It would be interesting if I tell the whole truth, <laughs> you know, about you know, everything I've done. You know, it's easy to say, tell her the truth about taking out the trash and sweeping the sidewalk. And <laughs> but will I tell her the truth about all the TV I watched on the internet or, you know, what I ate? The chocolate-covered donut that somebody left at the potluck that I had. <laughs> now, my wife would be okay with that, but it's just interesting. Like, even though she'd probably appreciate me telling her those things. It'd be, make it easier for her to tell me all the things she needs to tell me. <laughs> but it's just interesting to me how I'll leave things out. You know, even though I don't even need to, but it's just like all these sort of subtle ways that we practice deceit. So that, that could be just like homework for us for a couple of weeks, to just really play by keeping that intention alive, the intention not to deceive, not to play loose with truth. And then the other thing, this is all obvious, of course, when we hear it like now, but you know we get caught in this, and the Buddha says to you know, suggest to abstain from slanderous speech. Here, it's the intention in the mind to use speech to divide, to separate. So it's divisive speech. And this is highly uh, used at the time of the Buddha and since, in, especially in monastic communities, but more generally in spiritual communities, because the Buddha recognized, I think, the value of having a community where you feel safe, you know, like some of our groups of friendships, you know, a group of friends, or if you're fortunate in your family, the people you live with, have that kind of safety where we basically trust that people aren't out to hurt us. And in that safety, we can relax and we can learn a lot about the spiritual path, a lot about our mind and heart in a way that in, if we're in a place where we don't feel safe, we've just moved into a sorority or fraternity, you know, and we're, or we're just at a new job, and you know, all that, that triggers for us, like needing to impress or afraid of making a mistake or humiliating ourselves. Well, when we don't feel safe, we get tight, and we feel very justified in shading the truth and doing all sorts of things. But when we're in an intimate group of people where there's a lot of safety, well, we don't feel like we have to defend ourselves or disguise or pretend that things are other than they are. Especially, you know, in a community like this where we are all, to some degree, looking at our minds all the time and realizing how out of control our minds are and how impersonal it all is. Well, it's like a great invitation to all of us not to be afraid to talk more directly and to share more intimately about how it is for us. One of the things I hear over and over again in the different activities at the center is how grateful people are to be in a group where, with people who don't really know each other well in our conventional sense, like where I was born and what I do. and you know, We don't know a lot of this necessarily about each other, but we feel very comfortable sharing intimate details about what's arising in our minds, this and that, because we understand it's just stuff being known. And there's a deep sense of safety that, that in this container, people aren't going to go and, hey, you know what I heard about, and talking about it in that way. It's sort of sacred ground. And so this is the reason for this 
precept or this instruction not to use speech to dis, uh, to uh, that's dis- uh, divisive, that's slanderous, where the intention is to break apart. And instead, I mean, you could put it in the opposite, you know, to undertake the training or the practice of speaking in ways that bring people together. You know, and we can do this whether we're watching a basketball team, and even though we might have a favorite for some silly reason, like, well, that team is in the same conference as the college that I went to. So I really want them to win, or, you know, I once knew somebody who played basketball. <laughs> so we have these silly reasons. But we can, we can also appreciate other, the other side. Same with political discussions. We can really see, oh, it must be hard for this other side. It must be hard for these people you know, to really want something to pass or to really want something not to pass. It's like we can use speech. It doesn't mean we don't have opinions. It doesn't mean we don't see things particular ways. But we don't need to sow dissension in our speech. And then the third is abstains from harsh speech or speaks in ways that are gentle and pleasing to hear. And the way that this is kind of broken apart, harsh speech is kind of using speech as a club to be abusive or to be insulting. Or even like sarcasm is kind of using speech in a way that's painful. You know, we say one thing, but we really mean another. And a lot of this, you know, we don't even realize we're doing. It's like a a little kid sort of realizing they've got some power. You know, they pick something up and they start pounding it. You know, and it's like that with our voice. Like, there's a lot of energy in our voice. There's a lot of power there. We can do a lot of harmful things. Sylvia Burstein, one of the teachers at Spirit Rock, she has this wonderful teaching where she'll say in a group like this, she'll say, Okay, raise your hand if you broke your if you've broken a bone. You know, and of course a bunch of people raise their hand. And then she say says something like, Well, keep your hand up if the broken bone still hurts. You know, most people will put their hands down. And then she'll say, Raise your hand if you've ever been hurt by words. You know, everybody puts their hands up. Raise your hand if you're still hurting because of some words somebody's spoken or you've spoken. You know, and most people, most of us would keep our hands up because words are powerful. And not just because of the divisiveness, but just using words as clubs to kind of have an impact. And, you know, we can do it another way. We can speak in ways that even if we have difficult things that need to be said, so it doesn't mean we have to avoid speaking the truth in ways that might actually hurt somebody. But the intention isn't to hurt them. The intention is to be gentle. So we may need to deliver a painful message, but we don't need to get into the power of truth because we can, which is what we tend to do. At least I do sometimes, I notice. And then the last one is abstaining from idle chatter. This is a hard one, as all of you know, I'm sure. And some of you, has anybody here participated in the... uh, Media fast. Well, a bunch of us here at the center are doing these media fasts. We had a bunch of people did it the last week in July, uh, January rather, and then a few of us are going to continue the last week of the month through the year. Now, of course, for each of us, what a media fast looks like is quite different. I mean, I'm using email all the time. Like mine started today. Now it's starting again today because it's the last week of the month, and until next Sunday. You know, for me, it's like no internet. We don't have a TV, but, you know, nowadays you can get TV on the internet, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) So no TV and, uh, you know, no movies. And and for me especially, the difficult one is news. Now, I let myself listen to the uh, NPR, National Public Radio, headlines once a day, which is about (laughs) five minutes or so. That's, That's sort of what I allow myself. And, but everyone does it differently. So I don't really put limits on working on the email because I'd be very happy not to do email. <laughs> so it's not, uh, it's not like a distraction for me. But, so 
the point here is just to notice how we use idle speech or just language, media in general, to fill up our life, a ways of avoiding what we're feeling. Avoiding, basically, we're avoiding our life, which, of course, supports that feeling of separation and the pain of separation. And so specifically, you know, in terms of working with speech, we want to notice the kind of buddies we have where really the relationship more than anything, at least in parts, is that we use each other to get lost. We use each other to disconnect. Because some of our relationships are just the opposite. We really use each other to come into the moment. Those are called good friendships. Now, a lot of, a lot of our bad friendships are the same as our good friendships. It's like, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, I notice this with my wife a lot. It's like sometimes we're using each other to kind of distract each other. And we kind of know how to do that, you know, how to sort of find that particular habit energy in the other person that just wants to get lost into some sort of mindless activity, whether it's through speech or through some kind of media activity. And we also know how to find in each other that person that is very interested in the truth and can kind of working together in conversation or in some sort of interaction really come to the heart of the moment, into the intimacy of the moment, together, using each other to do that. You know, and most of you know, or some of you at least know, the Buddha has many lists, and one of the lists is, has to do with things that are worthy of conversation and things that aren't worthy of conversation. So I'll share that with you just because it's a bit disconcerting. <laughs> What do you want to hear first? <laughs> I'll do the ones that are, are not worthy of conversation. Talk about rulers or politicians, criminals, ministers of state, armies, dangers, battles, food, drink, clothing, dwellings, adornments, perfumes, relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, provinces, women or men, heroes, streets, baths, relations who have died, this and that. <laughs> the origin of, of the world, the origin of the ocean, eternity views, annihilation views, so just basic philosophical discussions. Worldly loss, worldly gain, self-indulgence, self-mortifications. Okay, so don't talk about that. Okay, yeah, well, they didn't say weather, I'm surprised. Maybe back then, weather was sort of a survival thing. Uplifting topics of conversation. Wanting little, right? So simplicity, contentment, seclusion, aloofness from contact, effort, the power of living a virtuous ethical life, concentration, understanding, and freedom. But you know, now I know it sounds kind of restricted. restricted. <laughs> but like right now, right now we're all laughing and we're talking about something restrictive, right? And, and there's a really beautiful feeling in the room. So there. <laughs> You know, and somebody could tell, talk to you about the peaceful afternoon they had just sitting at home and cleaning the kitchen and bathroom and cooking a nice meal for themselves. Well, that's, that could be a way of talking about the beauty and the happiness of seclusion. You know? Huh? Right, but... So, you, you can use the word food... Even more specific, but be real, be talking about contentment or be talking about seclusion. So you know, obviously we have to understand the spirit of these things, or the effort to take care of ourselves. You know that, like, to talk about you know the 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 joy of discipline as we you know train ourselves to walk instead of ride driving our car and to cook a nice meal instead of you know eating food that isn't so good. 
So the emphasis there is on the beauty, the wholesomeness of effort, and how it leads to happiness, how wise effort leads to happiness. So it would be nice to hear from people about these things. So for homework for this next week, and then I'll open it up for discussion, you know, you can work with uh, truthfulness versus falseness, divisiveness versus concord, you know, using speech for divisiveness versus concord, harshness, you know, using speech as a club versus using speech that's gentle and soothing, using speech that kind of brings us into the moment, brings us into the truth, brings us into our lives versus speech and language that sort of gets us lost in things that aren't, in the end, very important at all. So I'll leave it here so we can hear from each other. We have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear what you've learned in your life about speech, <clears throat> about truth. Yeah, Paul. I asked this question to you before, but I can't remember the answer. Um, when I notice my mind gets distracted, I realize it, I notice it. Um, I cannot register the separation and uh, suffering. In fact, as you were talking, I was thinking about this question, and I was like, oh, I'm distracted. And then I, I did it right here. Like, mm -hmm. I cannot sense the pain I'm wondering, is it just because my mind's too gross and not sensitive enough that I don't feel it? I mean, you know, when you, have, when you need a functional mind just to read and do things, mm -hmm. you're usually distracted. But you don't feel, at least I don't feel, directly the suffering. Right, but it, there's a couple alternative. I mean, a couple possibilities. Either you're not actually suffering, which you should always hold as a possibility. You might not be suffering. You might not have correctly discerned the quality of the intention behind that activity, and maybe it's actually mostly skillful, not contracted. Because Paul's a teacher and has kids, and so living a busy life, family life, work life, involved here at the center, you know, there's the mind's being drawn all kinds of different ways, all sorts of different things you have to do with your mind. But a lot of the intentions behind those activities are not unwholesome. So just because we're really busy doesn't mean that the activity is being driven by greed or aversion or delusion, right? So that if we looked in those moments, we wouldn't find the telltale sign of greed delusion or aversion, which is the contraction or the, the pain. So either it's what you said, that the mind is gross, it's distracted, and you're not noticing it. Now, this is one of the great things about going on retreat or having a regular daily sitting practice, and then over time developing more power of concentration, quieting the mind down deeper levels, is that we're better, more quickly, and better able to discern whether our intentions are contracting or whether they're releasing. You know, are the intentions wholesome or unwholesome? It really stands out when the mind's quiet. Even a, a relatively wholesome thought, like you might be on a retreat and you just remember, you know, did I tell that person to do something for me? And so it's just a little minor worry arises in the mind. But just that thought, and then when you notice that thought in the mind, you'll notice the mind and the body has gotten contracted, even with a relatively minor thought. You know, it's not like you're thinking about some deep, you know, entrenched hatred for somebody. You're just wondering if you told somebody something. But in the quietness of the mind, you'll notice that that's a disturbance. And then you can very quickly release it, too. Or you can, you can react to the disturbance. I mean, it's sort of a, a two-edged thing. Feeling how tight the mind has gotten with this little thought can remind the mind, oh, just let go. I'm already on retreat. I'm not going to call the person. I just, I'll take what comes, you know, and you just let go. Or because it seemingly hurts so much, it hurts so much because the concentration is deep, not that it's a big deal. So it looks bigger than it is. Then the mind will say, oh, I should have done that. I wonder what else I forgot, you know, and then it starts scanning and creates more drama. So either it's not a big deal because you don't see anything. And basically, 
we can only see what we see. And if we don't see anything, you know, we just go on. Because to be sort of thinking, oh, there's got to be something here is a little, you know, kind of maybe overvigilant. The other experiences in terms of speech. I forgot your name. Well, one thing I've become aware of that I've been doing doing lately is like, when I get to know someone new, I'm always trying to impress them and get them to like me and want them to have a certain view of of me. And it's really not fun. And it kind of takes away from the present moment. And it's something, like I said, I haven't been super aware of, but now I'm becoming more aware. Mm -hmm. And I want to let that go, but there's a habit energy that's kind of hard for me to... Yeah, well, clearly you're doing the right thing because you're noticing something you didn't notice. That's a telltale sign of, you know, just the, generally whether you're formally practiced or not, but for some reason mindfulness is growing in your life. And it's great to see things we haven't seen before. So just to appreciate that. And also in appreciating it, then you're, you're going to be willing to be more tolerant with the consequences of being more mindful which is you're going to start seeing things that are unpleasant to see, and you're going to want to do something about it, but you're already doing something about it. That's why you're seeing it. And you just got to keep seeing it and seeing that it's unpleasant. Because seeing the, the tension, there you are with somebody new, and then you're aware that you're trying to impress them, and you're aware that you're aware, and you're aware that it's tight and heavy and unpleasant, that alone is correcting the whole thing. Hating yourself is extra and doesn't work. It's actually reinforcing you know, a negative quality or being in a hurry. But just seeing the unwholesomeness of it. Now, of course, it isn't wrong to, you know, to say, hey, Jessica, relax you know, in your mind or something like that. But it's like you're speaking to another person. What's the tone of voice? Are you using that as a club? You know, hey, relax. Or is it really coming from compassion? Honey, you know, you're all bound up. It's okay to relax. You know, either this person will like you or they won't like you. And uh, do you really want someone to like you because you're tight? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, so, you know, but it needs to come from kindness. The, the Buddha has, and we'll come back to this next week, he has four ways to decide whether you should say something and whether you're going to say it to yourself or somebody else. Is it truthful? Is it timely? Is it gentle or motivated by kindness? And is it useful? And all four of these have to be true before you'd speak. You know, just because something's helpful but isn't truthful, you wouldn't necessarily say it. You need to be truthful, helpful, at the right time, which is another way of, you know, at the right time means that it's going to actually be useful. And then motivated by kindness. Yeah. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Dave. I was thinking as you were talking about in the how that can be a form of speech to you and things like Facebook, how I can get so lost in the distraction of and the storyline of, you know, like my profile picture to the friends I have on there, just this whole storyline of this is me, this is my life and That's right. It's one thing or another. So 
This is a good thing about this path of practice. It initially, it's kind of superficially, we might think, oh my God, I've got to change my whole life. But it's not about, I mean, it might be useful to change your whole life or some aspect of our life, but not necessarily, maybe just changing our attitude. And then using, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing what we love. Because actually it's a good place to learn about the mind if we really care about something, whether it's falling in love with something or really getting into some activity or some cause. It's re- actually it's useful because it, it will reveal so much of the conditioning of the mind. But the idea is purifying our relationship to what we love, to what we care about. So we're teasing out everything that's extra. Not, in, not to be good, but because it's a relief. You know, it will be a relief to be a great runner without anything extra, you know? Just running for the sake of running, being, uh, you know, devoted, because being devoted is a pleasant thing to do. Whatever it is, being, you know, being a great mother or being a great father or being a great teacher or being a great whatever. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Dave. That was wonderful. Nick, did you have a thought? Yeah, I have a question again. I've seen double ideas in the lot. Obviously, yeah. Um, this is a six-hour drive, I think. It's a very long time to be in the car with my roommate and two of his friends. And I found myself not really saying a whole lot because this speech, I guess, wouldn't have um, It's all on the, you know, on the category. <laughs> 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 and it was a weird sort of disconnect, I guess, that helped. I didn't really have anything to add. And it wasn't like I was worried about their opinion of me because I don't see these people besides my roommate ever. It was, I don't know, when you're talking about being disconnected by idle speech, you can also be disconnected by not speaking. Yeah, and one thing I notice sometimes with that is that when people are engaged in something that we see as unwholesome, Initially, we can feel frightened by the unwholesomeness, like somehow it's going to contaminate us. And on some level, it might be true because of our own tendency to want to get involved. It might feel dangerous in a way. But that's not the end of the practice. The end of the practice is to be able to be present and to participate even. Like our silence is a participation. And not to feel like our silence is a way of separating that is a way of being in the middle. It doesn't mean you have to like even listen what they're saying, but but we don't want to sacrifice being intimate. So if you're sitting there and feeling really uncomfortable, then being really intimate with that first. And once you make peace with your own discomfort, you might really start being intimate where they're at and where they're coming from. And compassion might arise, or a really clever phrase might arise that just changes the whole tone so what's unwholesome all of a sudden becomes wholesome or less unwholesome. You know, just like the perfect medicine. Not because you wanted to fix them, but because you were really present and intimate and not caught up in feeling like you might get contaminated by their unwholesome speech. But it's not easy. I mean, I think that's a, a higher level kind of practice. And a lot of the time, the best thing is to leave. But when you're driving six hours, <laughs> that's not really possible which is one of the reasons there are iPods. <laughs> and you can put nice Dharma talks on your iPod and just tell them you're listening to music or something. Perfect in case you're <laughs> Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Clint. I think for me, and, and I see this in myself, when I was recently at a, a gathering of, um, I worked in the film business for years, and I was gathering people who work in business over, over years. And it's, it's a great business because it's full of misfits from every walk of life. So I really enjoy the people in that, in that business. And there's some very, very liberal people and some very, very conservative people. And it's, there's two people who just drive each other crazy. And if I talk to one of them about the other one, the other one about the other one, it's really, I'm, I've gotten to the point where I enjoy it because 
I see them get so worked up and so uh, they suffer. The suffering is like just, it just radiates. And I'm just really curious why it, and it seems to me that the biggest difference is it's not that we can't have opinions or that we can't have thoughts or likes or dislikes, but for me it's like when I, when I, when I identify with them so much that I, this, this is, to me, I really feel like probably the most addictive thing in our culture is self-righteousness. And that people just think like, no, this is right. And you, I can't even believe you would joke about something like that. Mm-hmm. It's so serious. And and I see that go back and forth. And it's again, it's not that the person who's on this side is wrong or the person on that side is right or vice versa. It's just that, and it's been like you said, it's been very liberating for myself to not get so caught up in that my views are the right views, even though I do still sometimes. I, at least I can track and then uh, I find this humor about it with myself. Yeah, yeah. And what's helped me with that, Clint, is. Uh, because I have, you know, my particular opinions about how things should be done in the world and in the country. And when I see people getting worked up in ways that I think are the wrong direction, what I see is that a lot of us, we've, uh, we've kind of taken our political and social views and they've become synonymous with survival. Like we think this is how it has to be. Because we're, we're so much psychological beings, much more than we are physical beings now, and so if my worldview, the way I think things should be, if that's synonymous with survival for us as a people or us as a country or whatever it might be, then I'm going to fight as if I'm being strangled. I mean, and that's what we start seeing these days is that people are identified or attached to their views as if it's one of their limbs or one of their vital organs. And so when someone has a different opinion, different view, it is like somebody trying to murder them. And I'm, I'm, I'm not justifying the kind of divisiveness out there. I'm just trying to understand it so I can relate to it with compassion and understanding instead of being part of the problem. So I, I try to see that because I mentioned before, you know, like my parents or my dad rather, he watches programming that I wouldn't watch. And I find it harmful for him and, I think, in general, for people. But I have to somehow make space to be around that energy and uh, kind of what happens from those strong views. So I, I really try to see it, oh, people are afraid. They're really afraid. And that's why they're holding so tight to their particular views. And I know what fear's like, you know. So I can all of a sudden I can start to relate. I know what feeling threatened feels like, and so I can relate to them. I can have compassion, and that, that's really helped me with the, this, these divisive times. So it's 8:30. We need to leave it here, but we'll pick it up for a couple more weeks. We'll continue with this topic. Be good to hear, to practice at home, and then to hear what people have to say next week. So we'll take a few minutes and let go of the words now. Take a breath or two together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.